it's made into a wonderful movie that if you haven't seen it, I would strongly encourage you uh, to see it. It's, uh, it's a wonderful uh, story. And in the story, the children find this old wardrobe and they walk through it and they find out that it's essentially a gateway or a doorway into this other world and this other world is called Narnia. And when they get there, they discover that Narnia is under the spell of this terrible witch called the White Witch. And so a little girl meets uh, a fawn named Mr. Tumnus. And um, she asks this fawn about uh, the White Witch. She wants to know, well, who is she? Oops. There we go. And so uh, Mr. Tumnus replies, as you can see, he says, why, it is she that has got all of Narnia under her thumb. It's she that makes it always winter. Always winter and never Christmas. Think of that. And so as the book progresses, we meet a wonderful, kind, and powerful lion named Aslan, who's the picture of Jesus Christ. And as, le as Aslan goes on the move in Narnia, the spell of the White Witch begins to break. Now here's a little bit of the way C.S. Lewis described spring breaking out uh, everywhere that uh, Aslan draws near. A dozen crocuses grew round the foot of an old tree, gold and purple and white. Then came a sound even more delicious than the sound of the water. Close behind the path they were following, a bird suddenly chirped from the branch of a tree. It was answered by the chuckle of another bird a little further off. And then, as if there had been a signal, there was a chattering and chirping in every direction, and then a moment full of song. And within five minutes, the whole woods was ringing with the bird's music. And wherever Edmund's eyes turned, he saw birds alighting on branches, or sailing overhead, or chasing one another, or having little quarrels, or tidying their feathers with their beaks. The tree began to be fully alive. The larches and birches were covered with green. The beech trees had put forth their delicate, transparent leaves. As the travelers walked under them, the light also became green. A bee buzzed across their path. This is no thaw, said the dwarf, speaking to the white witch. This is spring. Your winter has been destroyed, I tell you. This is Aslan's doing. Do any of you feel like you've been living through a long winter? Everything seems dead or dying in your family or with your health, in your relationships or your finances or your ministry? That it's been kind of a long, hard freeze and nothing really seems to be working? We desperately want spring to come. We desperately want to see signs of life. We want to see the snow melt and the grass spring up, the flowers bloom, birds to sing. And for that to happen, Aslan, this great Christ figure, has to get on the move. Aslan's kingdom needs to come. Today I want to look at one of the key phrases in the Lord's Prayer we where we are instructed by Jesus to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done. So let's pray and then we'll turn to God's word. So, Father, I, I just lift this message up before you. I give you thanks for all of the thought and the time that went into it, that it will bear fruit, 
that you will be in the midst of it. So grant that it is you and not me that these people here here today. Give you thanks and ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along, uh, we're going to start. We're going to go a bunch of different places today, but we're going to start in Matthew uh, 6, 9 through 13. We'll have it up on the screen for you as well. So here is Matthew uh, 6, 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now scripture teaches us that God is the ruler of everything. Almighty God, the creator, rules and reigns over everything in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, big and small, high and low. God rules it all. God reigns over the mightiest angel like Michael the archangel and over the most wicked of demons like Satan. God Almighty reigns over all things from the biggest galaxy to the smallest subatomic particle. Over life and death, rich and poor, young and old. But while Almighty God reigns, we don't always experience his reign. We don't always see his rule. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're saying, God, I know you reign. I know you rule. I know you are the king. But will you break into this situation? May I see your reign over here. To pray your kingdom come is to pray a huge prayer. What I want to explore from the Bible today a little more fully is what we're praying when we pray your kingdom come. And if we look back to the second book of the Bible called Exodus, we'll see an incredible picture of the kingdom of God. We see a collision of the kingdom of God colliding with the kingdom of darkness. Now Exodus is the story of the rule of God coming into collision with the power of Egypt, and specifically <coughs> the dark power that energized Egypt. You see, the story of the Exodus is not just a story of a slave people of Israel being kept in cruel bondage by the slave masters of Egypt. It, it is that. But the physical reality of this oppression is simply a manifestation of a deeper spiritual reality. There were dark forces that energized Egypt's enslavement of Israel. And there are always dark forces that energize oppression, domination, abuse, and enslavement. There's often something more going on than meets the eye. There's something behind the scenes, giving power and energy to the enslavement of people, to the tearing down of the image of God in people. Anytime you see somebody abusing somebody else, you should say to yourself, I'm not just watching flesh and blood here. There's something darker going on behind the political and military and economic power of Egypt, the spiritual powers of darkness. You see this displayed in Exodus 7, 8 through 12. Starting in verse 8, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. 
Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a, sta a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. The story of the snakes is a story of a spiritual battle. <coughs> the snakes of the magicians represented the occult powers. Aaron's snake ate up their snake. The meaning couldn't be clearer. God is more powerful than any dark force. The story of the Exodus is a story of the kingdom of God colliding with the kingdom of darkness, which energized Egypt. This is what the ten plagues were all about. You've heard that there were ten plagues sent against Egypt? Well, what was that all about? The Lord tells Moses the meaning behind the plagues in another verse in Exodus, uh, chapter 12, verse 12. He says, on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods, plural, of Egypt. I am the Lord. Each of the plagues was a physical manifestation of the kingdom of God. God's reign had come to destroy the powers of darkness ruling Egypt. In the first plague, Moses turned the Nile River into blood. The Nile was supposed to be home of the Egyptian god Ha-Pi. Not happy, Ha-Pi. <laughs> During the first plague, Ha-Pi died, or at least got his nose bloodied. The kingdom of God punched him in the face. Ha-Pi turned to blood. The second plague was frogs, and the frog was the symbol of another Egyptian goddess, Heket, the goddess of fertility. When God's kingdom came, Heket spun out of control. Instead of giving fertility to crops and herds, she goes haywire and multiplies completely out of control. During the fifth plague, the livestock begin to die. Bulls represented by the Egyptian god Apis, and cows represented the Egyptian goddess Isis. The killing of the cattle pointed to a deeper spiritual reality. The god of Israel was destroying the Egyptian gods and goddesses. The highest god of the Egyptian pantheon was the god Ra, the sun god. In the ninth plague, the sun god was blotted out as darkness came over the land. The Lord hears the prayers of his people who are being oppressed. He sees their suffering. He comes down and rescues his people Israel. God rules over the universe, but his people don't always experience his rule. So when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, what we're saying is, Lord, intervene. Break into this oppressive and unjust situation. Destroy the dark forces that are energizing this abuse. What happens when the kingdom comes? God liberates his people. He sets his people free. They're no longer dominated. They're no longer abused. They're no longer working for nothing. Throughout history, when people have been enslaved, they look back to the story of the Exodus and they've cried out, Lord, let your kingdom come. African slaves in America always talked about the Exodus. Let your kingdom come. Same thing was true in South Africa under apartheid. Victims of the apartheid looked to the Exodus. Let your kingdom come. Set us free. Lift this yoke of oppression off our necks. The spell of winter break and let spring come. Let me ask you a question. 
Are you or someone you know experiencing abuse or domination or control? Now, of course, we want to do what we can humanly do to report that abuse, whether it's to the police or to Child Protective Services. You can tell us at the church what you know or what somebody is going through. But sometimes there's not a lot we can humanly do. Maybe the, abu the abuse is something that the police or a government agency can't deal with. Maybe it's emotional abuse or repeated verbal abuse. Maybe it's economic control, a spouse that controls every penny of spending. Maybe the abuse is happening through the company you're working for or in a church that you once attended. Maybe the abuse is far off. We're concerned about our Christian brothers and sisters being daily persecuted by Chairman Kim in North Korea or in China or in Iran. Or maybe the abuse is more subtle, religious discrimination against anyone who dissents from the enforced secular orthodoxy of an academic department at a university. What should we do? Just pray. <laughs> Lord, bring your power against the forces that are energizing this oppression. Lord, intervene. We need to experience your rule. Just pray. Now let me give you a little bit different picture of the kingdom of God. One, not so much in collision with the forces of darkness. I'd like to move in the ahead in the story of Israel to the time of King Solomon. Under King Solomon, the third king of Israel, Israel experienced unprecedented power. The borders of Israel stretched from Egypt all the way to Iraq. Much of the Middle East was subject to Israel during Solomon's reign. The wealth of the nations poured into Israel. What we see in Solomon's reign is a picture of the prosperity of the kingdom. Now I want you to see this with me in 1 Kings. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, we're not just praying about spiritual things or invisible things. We're also praying about material reality. What does the kingdom look like? Look at this picture of the reign of King Solomon. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. See, when you think of God coming, you should think of a party or a wedding. But don't think of a white Protestant wedding where people stand around in the church basement drinking cups of punch and eating mints and little peanuts out of a cup because the family wanted to do the wedding on the cheap. When you think about the kingdom of God, you should think about a Jewish wedding where the couple's carried in on big overstuffed chairs. Everyone is drinking and dancing and men are setting their hats on fire and women are doing a circle dance. When you think about the kingdom of God coming to you, you should think about an Indian wedding where families spend months preparing and spend a huge part of their life savings on decorations and dance and costumes and banquets that last for days. Sally and I had the privilege of going to one of these weddings. It was an Indian wedding. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. The buffet that they put out, we thought was dinner, was just simply a snack. <laughs> and I mean, this could have fed an army. And I mean, the, the costuming of the 
people in the wedding party. The whole thing was just unreal. So do you know someone who is unhappy and really struggling with life or depressed? The one thing you can do is to just pray, let your kingdom come. Let's look at 1 Kings 4.21-23. through 23. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of the finest flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. Do you know anyone who's struggling financially? Know anyone struggling to get a business off the ground? Anyone who's unemployed? Anyone who just can't make ends meet, even though they're working two jobs? Anyone who wants to send their kid to college, but they just can't affo afford to do so? Now, there's a, there are a number of very practical ways that we as a church can come around impoverished people. We have food drives to help stock the pantries of ACES, which is Ashland Christian Emergency Services. And we as a church donate regularly to uh, Feed More, which is an organization that helps to feed Central Virginia in a number of ways, Meals on Wheels just being one of them. Certainly we can help and come alongside someone who is uh, in need of a job. If you're an employer or a hiring manager, you can take a risk on someone that other people aren't willing to hire. Maybe by offering a job to an ex-felon, or someone with a learning disability, or a kid who's aged out of the foster care system. But one of the most practical things we can do for someone who is struggling financially is to pray. Just pray. Your kingdom come to this struggling family. What is God's kingdom like? For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the Euphrates River from Tipshah to Gaza and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel from Dan to Beersheba lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. See, people who are at war, for people who are at war, the kingdom means shalom or peace. Now, shalom in the Bible is sometimes translated as peace, but it literally refers to the state of affairs when all is right with the world. Shalom is when someone asks you thi how things are going, and you say, hey, I'm, I'm good. I'm enjoying life. I'm happy, especially in my relationships. My family is doing amazing. There's no conflicts. It's just a total blessing everywhere. That's shalom. So do you know anyone who's experiencing relational conflicts? Are you at odds with anyone? Someone in your extended family or someone in your nuclear family? Someone who's struggling in a relationship at work or with a friend? Or someone in the church? Pray. <laughs> Just pray. Your kingdom come. Bring shalom, Lord. Bring your peace. Again, what is the kingdom of God like? God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight, and a breadth of understanding 
as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than all the wisdom of all the people of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Kalkol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. And for people who need guidance, the kingdom means wisdom. Is there anybody here who needs wisdom? <laughs> All right, one person waves their hand, too. The rest of you are good, I guess. So if you're facing a major problem and you don't know what to do, anyone need direction? Is there anyone here who would say, I've got this major decision, I'm not sure what to do, and I need some wisdom? Just pray, your kingdom come. We've talked about the collision of the kingdoms and the prosperity of the kingdoms. And now as we move forward in the Bible, I want to look at the book of Isaiah. And it's in Isaiah that we learn about the promise of the kingdom. Isaiah was commissioned as a prophet when he had a vision of God sitting on the throne. He was in the temple praying one day, and the heavens opened. He saw God sitting on a throne and angels surrounding him, worshiping. Isaiah's first vision was of the kingdom of God. And from the beginning of his ministry, he understood that God rules and that God reigns. So Isaiah's message is all about what it looks like when God's kingdom breaks in. We know that God rules and we know that God reigns. But we want to experience that. We want to experience his rule. And we want to others to experience God's rule in this world at this time. And so after Isaiah saw God seated on a throne, he prophesied about a coming king, a messiah. And here's what we read. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government, in peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So what will it be like when Messiah the King comes and brings his kingdom? Well, here's what Isaiah says. Then, Will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped? Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Do you know anyone who's sick? Sometimes we don't think we can do a whole lot about that unless we're a physician. But we can pray. We can pray, Lord, let your kingdom come in this person's condition. Let them be healed. What else does Isaiah say? In verse 25 of chapter 43, he says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. 
Do you know anyone who is weighed down by past mistakes? Anyone who keeps going over and over things they could have done or shouldn't have done? Do you know anyone who's constantly second-guessing themselves? Anyone who has tremendous regrets about what they've done or the way they've lived their lives or what they should have done and didn't do? Isaiah says that when Messiah, the King, comes, he's coming to forgive sins and clear the guilty. The kingdom is forgiveness. Isaiah says, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. You see, the kingdom also means resurrection. And so when Messiah comes, he will usher in this age of resurrection. All of us have lost loved ones. Some of you have lost children. Some of you have suffered miscarriages. Some of you have lost spouses. Others of us have lost parents and brothers and sisters and best friends. The book of Isaiah is all about the future time when Messiah comes. Then there's going to be no more death. Even better, those who have died will rise from the dead. Let your kingdom come, Lord. The Messiah came. Jesus is the Messiah. That's why he's called the Christ. That's the Greek way of communicating Jesus is the Messiah. He's the embodiment of the kingdom. When we pray, your kingdom come, what we're really saying is, Jesus come, let your spirit come. Because wherever the spirit of Jesus is, that's where the kingdom is. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, the problem that first century Jews had with Jesus was that they read about the kingdom of God from what they used as Bibles. And they said, well, wait a minute. You're saying the kingdom of God has come because you are the Messiah. You're saying God's rule and God's reign has broken into the world. But we know about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God means the deliverance from all oppression. We know the Exodus story. The kingdom of God means prosperity and peace and wisdom. We know the Solomon story. The kingdom of God means healing and forgiveness and resurrection. We know what Isaiah prophesied. Where is all this stuff, Jesus? Well, what we see in the message in the ministry of Jesus is the mystery of the kingdom. What we find disclosed in Jesus is that God's kingdom, God's rule, is going to come into the world in two stages, corresponding with the two comings of Jesus. In the first stage, the kingdom is going to be hidden. It's not going to be obvious. You have to look for it, search for it. In the second stage, God's kingdom is going to be evident and open. 
It is going to be overwhelming, like lightning flashing from one end of the sky to the other. In the first stage, God's will doesn't displace every other will. In the first stage of the kingdom coming into the world, God's will is done, but so is the will of <coughs> sinful human beings. So is the will of Satan. In the second stage of the coming of the kingdom, when Christ returns, there will be only one will done on earth. The will of God. Right now, during this era, God's will doesn't always win the day. God's will can be resisted. God's will can be ignored. God's will can be crowded out of people's lives. That's why even though God's kingdom broke into the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah, we still have wars and crime and unhealed body and mental illness and broken marriages and sin and addiction. And God's people are persecuted all over the globe. The mystery of the kingdom is that the kingdom of God is here, but it hasn't yet replaced every other kingdom. The will of God is being done, but so is this, the will of sinful men and sinful women, and so is the will of Satan. This age runs on parallel tracks, God's will and all these other wills. When Jesus returns, creation is going to run on a monorail. It's going to run alone on the will of God alone. So right now we pray for breakthroughs. We pray that God's kingdom would supplant these other kingdoms. That God's will will be done and not Satan's will or people's will. And how does that kingdom come? Well, God's kingdom comes as we practice the activities of kingdom living. When we practice praying for the healing of others. When we practice sharing the good news about Jesus to others. When we practice forgiveness. When we practice feeding hungry people. When we practice hospitality. And the kingdom comes when the followers of Jesus pray for the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, there are so many situations in which we and other people need God to intervene. So many of us are living in the long winter. We need Aslan to go on the move. We need God's rule to come. We need God's will to be done in a major way. God has chosen to intervene at this time to bring his rule and his will in our day through the prayers of his people. So just pray. All the things that we want to see in this world that are good, all the things we want to see in our kids' lives, in the church, in our government, in our city, in the workplace, all of those things are available if God's kingdom comes. So pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Just pray. Amen. So let's pray.
Father, we so desire your kingdom to come. The problem is often that we don't desire it at the cost of anything else. question becomes, how badly do we want the kingdom to come? Do we want it badly enough to give up something that you've been asking us to give up all along? Do we want it badly enough to pray the same prayer day in and day out? see any change for days or weeks or months at a time? Are we willing to truly operate in faith? To trust that you are in control, that your kingdom is here, that we're just not seeing it yet. Father, we ask for that kind of faith. We ask for that kind of perseverance.
Lord, as, uh, as our service comes to a close, I just pray, Father, that you would bless all of these people who are here. Give them the strength and the courage to be your hands and feet to a world that is in such desperate need of a touch from you. Oftentimes, the kingdom comes in people's lives when we choose to act. When we see a need and choose to meet it. That's the kingdom coming. So, Father, help us to recognize those opportunities that you put in front of us. And to, to give us the courage to act on them. Beginning or end, I guess, to one new year and beginning to the